we purposefully wanted to found as a nonprofit to make sure that all of the products that we develop and bring into the marketplace are always in the public good, meaning that all assets in our 501c3 are owned by the public in perpetuity. That's Autumn Eno, Vice President of Medicine360. Later, we'll hear more from her as she talks with Pierce's Anastasia Gladkovskia about the need to democratize access to medications. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce Medtech, and Fierce Pharma. Today is Friday, June 2nd. Anastasia Gladkovskia is here with me today to give you this week's biopharma and medtech industry news rundown. Hey, Anastasia, there are currently 187 clinical trials for Alzheimer's disease underway right now. That's according to a new study from the Alzheimer's Association. 187. That's more than we've ever had before. But Annalie Armstrong wrote a story this week that shares a different perspective. With the sheer number of clinical trials, it's not all optimistic news, right? That's right. So with all the research that's happening, um, companies are facing a really significant challenge recruiting enough patients. To just put it into perspective, to fill all the open trials right now, we need more than 57,000 people. And the biggest need is specifically with phase three trials. So also adding to the issue is a lack of diversity in recruitment, which has delayed clinical development. And there's also a catch-22 here. Recent advancements in the Alzheimer's field mean that two new drugs are approved and available for most patients, that is Lakembi and a phase three clinical success for Donanumab. These are great for patients, but because of that, the Alzheimer's Association warned that patients could opt for those available treatments instead of choosing to Mm -hmm. participate in research. Yeah, that is a catch-22, isn't it? And I know fierce biotech reporter Annalie Armstrong will continue to keep us updated on that through her coverage of Alzheimer's. And she also covered another story this week, which caught my eye because it's about CRISPR. CRISPR is a gene editing tool that was derived from sequences of DNA from bacteria. So what if we could turn the technology against bacteria? Well, Sniper Biome recently concluded a phase one trial. It involved a combination of four CRISPR-armed bacteriophages. These target and destroy the antibiotic-resistant E. coli. They started the trial last year with 36 healthy volunteers, and Sniper Biome says the early interim data show proof of concept for the idea that CRISPR can help in the fight against antibiotic resistance. Hmm, gotcha. And what are the next steps? Well, Sniper Biome plans to test the drug in cancer patients who are at a high risk from infections during treatment. So these patients typically are treated with a common antibiotic, but that antibiotic really has become ineffective against the bacteria because of resistance. In a press release, the founder of Sniper Biome called this a safe alternative to traditional treatments that do not work against antibiotic-resistant strains. I think it's still early to say that, but looking ahead, we can certainly start thinking about the possibility of using this gene editing tool as a step toward replacing penicillin. Hmm. Zoe Becker wrote an article this week that updated us on the status of the nationwide drug shortages. Can you tell us more about that? 
Sure. So the report originally came from the Cancer Letter, an oncology news publication. Uh, the director of the FDA's Oncology Center for Excellence is Richard Pazder. He told Cancer Letter that the root cause of the shortages is a failure by the industry to invest in building capacity. And he also said that while the agency can and has offered assistance, it can't require a company to manufacture a drug or require diversified supply chains. And so what could be the solution for this? One potential solution would be a government contract with manufacturers to produce a sort of buffer stockpile of essential oncology drugs. Currently, 17 cancer drugs are experiencing shortages, um, which the FDA has been working to rectify. Okay, so not so much surprising news. We all knew this was coming, but Elizabeth Holmes reported to prison this week. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And how often did you watch the video of her waving goodbye? Because I couldn't take my eyes off it. I was hoping to see some hint of what she was feeling in that moment. So I actually didn't see the video of her waving goodbye, but I saw still images of her. And it was just so bizarre to see her smiling. She was with her handlers and her family, and she was getting out of a car. And she was Mm -hmm. like grinning ear to ear. And of course, I saw after there were some images that depicted her like with emotion and and crying. Of course, I imagine it must be a very emotional day. But Mm -hmm. it was just really strange to see her reaction. Um, as one of kind of happiness, maybe bewilderment. But yes, um, she is behind bars. Andrea Park has been covering her saga for some time. Uh, She reports that Holmes reported to the federal prison camp in Bryan, Texas on Tuesday to begin her 11-year sentence. And for for those who may not be caught up, Holmes was found guilty last year on four of 12 counts of fraud. All four counts were related to defrauding investors in Theranos, the startup that she had founded that claimed to have developed a machine that could test for hundreds of health conditions with just a prick of the finger and a few drops of blood. Well, prison life will be very different from the life she was leading before. Certainly. (laughs) At the prison camp, she'll be required to work, most likely in a factory job where she'll earn between 23 cents and $1.15 an hour. Those earnings are going to help chip away at the massive restitution that she owes, um, that she was ordered to pay to several Theranos investors and partners. It totals $452 million split between Holmes and her former business partner, Sunny Balwani. And she doesn't she also have like a massive, she has a lot of legal fees that she is currently unable mm-hmm. to pay. Yeah, I read more an article where she said she probably will never be able to pay off her legal fees. Yeah. Yikes. Well, Anastasia, thanks for sharing the news with me this week. You're welcome, Teresa. Anastasia is a regular segment host on Podnosis, our sister podcast. But today, we're lucky to have her on the top line. So coming up, we'll hear from Anastasia again as she talks with Autumn Eno, the vice president of Medicine 360. As more Americans grow concerned about drug prices, Big Pharma continues to lobby against price regulations. But a small market that almost no one talks about has emerged, nonprofit pharma. These companies argue that because they are free from the demands of shareholders, they can focus on providing low-cost generics overlooked by big pharma. But the sector faces an uphill battle from investment needs to supply chain bias. Time will tell if it can actually make a meaningful difference or if the model can sustain itself. 
Next, Anastasia Gladkovskia talks with Autumn Eno, the vice president of Medicine 360. That's a nonprofit pharma with a mission to produce and sell affordable medications. The two will talk about the need to democratize access to medications like emergency contraception, particularly for women. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. ZS is giving voice to patient centricity. Move beyond the buzzword to discover how to bring patient-led business models to life. Join me, Victoria Summers, Principal in ZS's Patient Health and Equity Accelerator, as I discuss effective strategies, best practices, and real-world examples with ZS experts from across the industry. Bonus content features patients in their own words, sharing their personal health journeys. You can find us at ZS.com. Look for the Patient Centricity Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It's great to meet you, Autumn. You as well. Thank you for having me. So um, I wanted to start with a bit of your background. You've worked um, in both for-profit and nonprofit pharma for more than two decades. Is that right? That's correct. I'm I'm probably the only person uh, in the U.S. that has worked in a U.S.-based nonprofit pharma for over 15 years. Wow. Well, that's impressive. And I, I wanted to get your take on kind of the, the biggest difference, I guess, to you from your perspective. Um, between working for a for-profit or a non-profit or not even working for them, but in terms of their mission, what would you say is the biggest difference? Uh, so as part of the founding team of Medicine360, which was the first non-profit pharma in the U.S. that brought products into the U.S. market, we purposefully wanted to found as a non-profit to make sure that all of the products that we develop and bring into the marketplace are always in the public good, meaning that all assets in our 501c3 are owned by the public in perpetuity. Well, that's great. I mean, it sounds like this is still pretty, pretty new and uncharted territory. Why do you think more folks aren't doing this? So nonprofit pharma is still largely unknown. Um, it is a new type of business that's uh, aimed to fill gaps in the U.S. marketplace. Um, For-profit pharma has created a huge um, a number of products that are aimed at improving health. Nonprofit pharma is here to fill the gaps that are left behind and to really focus on health equity uh, across the gamut of com of conditions. Uh, while Medicine360 is the first nonprofit pharma, uh, we are excited to have others in the in the space now, including um, companies like Civica RX, uh, who have come in with multiple products, looking and aiming to improve the overall public health and uh, access dynamics. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, I'm familiar with them and with harm reduction therapeutics as well. Right. right. And I know that nonprofit pharma, um, you know, says that it can lower costs, address shortages, and possibly even accelerate the development of new drugs. So I'm wondering if you can just explain or expand on that a little bit. How does being a nonprofit help achieve all of those things versus being a for-profit where obviously one of the benefits is um, having high revenues that could enable those things, right? Right. So to to not confuse the benefit of nonprofit versus uh, traditional uh, pharmaceutical companies, nonprofit pharma has the unique um, ability to prioritize public health 
um, and mission-based products ahead of profit. So we do not have the traditional return on investment requirements uh, that that the traditional pharmaceutical companies face um, to be in business. When we talk about health equity, what we are talking about is how do we bring products to market that are either not currently prioritized uh, because of the economics or um, the number of uh, potential users of products um, that don't make that high revenue mark. So because we don't have the traditional return on investments, nonprofit pharma is able to approach uh, pricing and the access strategies in combination to really uh, fundamentally address um, health equity and access. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Got it. So um, I wanted to turn to Medicines 360 mission, and it seems like Medicines 360 is focused on um, women's access to medications in particular. So I'm wondering if you can talk about the importance of this population, um, the sorts of shortages or policies that are currently implicating access to to drugs, and um, yeah, just, just talk about why women. So women, although we represent over half of the U.S. population, um, and that extends worldwide, um, only 1% today of all R&D investment in big pharma is actually going to female-specific conditions wow. other than innovative cancer treatments. Hmm. So that is a fundamental issue when you say, okay, how is how are women being prioritized in innovation and in products that really address our unique needs? So when Medicines 360 founded, we said we're prioritizing women because it's underserved and it is a, a population that deserves innovation and access and drugs that are really made uh, particularly for women um, and our leadership are women. And in terms of the policy landscape that might be impacting access to medications, um, of course, you know, the Dobbs decision last summer is top of mind. Um, and of course, we've watched that play out state to state that ripple effect that it's had not only on abortion access, but also contraceptives. I know that a couple of months ago, um, your subsidiary, Curie Pharma 360, that's the commercialization piece of the business, um, partnered yes. with Direct Relief to distribute contraceptives to safety net clinics. So um, what else is happening in women's medicine that you're really concerned about? So the Dobbs decision resulted in I would say light being shed on the fact that state by state decision making power directly impacts women's health and access to products. So today, when we talk about the priority of women's health, it's not just women's health overall, but what are the products that are being brought to market and prioritized for women? the political landscape and the policies, right? So there's politics and there's policy. The policies um, that dictate how women receive access to their medicines and coverage really have been impacted because of the Dobbs decision. And it's not just uh, abortion-related medications. It has the potential to really expand into many different types of of medicines for women, including contraception. Uh, contraception has been widely used by women um, of reproductive age, right? Women um, are trying to avoid 
a pregnancy or become pregnant uh, for over 30 years of their lives. Um, and that is a very long time to try to decide, am I getting pregnant? Am I not getting pre pregnant? Um, and how do I manage that decision? So when we talk about access, maybe we can move into a little bit of democratizing access. So if we define access and democratizing access as making sure things are accessible to everyone, right? So I have the choice, I have the ability to get access to something. It's a really simple concept, but because of this system that we just talked about, it's incredibly difficult to, to navigate and to find the clear answer to access. So nonprofit pharma, right? We go back to nonprofit pharma and medicine 360 overall. We have that ability to really focus on three things of access. The first one is how do we make something that was previously expensive affordable, right? So not mm -hmm. so highly priced that we can't get access to it. Um, Medicine360 did this with our hormonal IUD. As you noted, Cure Pharma, our subsidiary, is doing this with, with emergency contraception. The second one is making something that was previously paid for free. So you talked about our partnership and Cure with Direct Relief International. Uh, they are, are um, distributing free product across the U.S. Uh, to really make sure that the women who can't afford the products can get access to them. And then number three, how do we make it more convenient so that when you need access to a product, you don't have to drive two hours or three days in some people's cases mm -hmm. to get access? Um, so how do we partner with those clinics who are on the ground meeting women where they live in order to make sure that they can get access to a product. Um, so those are the fundamental things that we think about. So we, we spend a significant amount of time really thinking about tying that idea of democratizing access, healthcare equity, and matching it with, with financing in a, a population that is severely underfinanced today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you mentioned the supply chain, um, not really supporting, you know, low cost drugs. And I wanted to zero in on that a little bit. Can you talk about how drug manufacturers and their suppliers um, interact with each other and perhaps elevate or prioritize drugs that are more expensive? Is the supply chain a barrier to distributing low cost drugs? So the, the overall supply chain is both a barrier, but also the enabler of access to these drugs. So nobody likes drug shortages. Um, and I think there is a opportunity for all members of the supply chain to come together and really shift how we are looking at the supply of these particular types of drugs and how we bring them into the marketplace. So today, everybody has to have some type of profit to, to be able to get the drugs to the patients that ultimately need them. Um, but the, the way that that drug is currently moved through the system uh, should be different for drugs in shortage. And I think that's where the focus and opportunity really lies uh, in the coming year in looking at how do we ultimately address the cause and root cause of drug shortages. 
Mm-hmm. And I let's turn back to the partnerships. Um, we talked about Direct Relief already, a humanitarian organization that Curie has partnered with. Um, I mean, how critical to your mission and to distributing your drugs are these types of partnerships? And how do you select your partner? How do you vet your partner and make sure that um, they're a good fit in making sure that you can actually um, fulfill your mission? Right. So if if we start with direct relief and, and go back to the how do we really democratize access to these drugs, direct relief was a critical partner in how do we provide our medicines and products to the patients that need them for free, right? So there's a free product component. And that is something that Direct Relief is a master at. They are a fabulous organization focused on partnerships with uh, safety net clinics, free clinics throughout the U.S. So that's the free component. There's another partner that plays a key role in making something that was previously expensive affordable. So we start at the very beginning with here's critical medicines and then we need strong partners throughout the supply chain that ultimately reach patients. So it's not one partner um, that we are talking about here. It is multiple partners that create an ecosystem of access. So who is willing to come at it from a slightly different perspective than the traditional current access um, uh, contracting strategies in the U.S. Mm. Uh, and and the good news is that everyone wants to solve these issues. So, you know, there are ways to make this happen. And I think we're at the very beginning of really um, demonstrating this. Mm-hmm. Got it. And then I'm wondering from a high level policy perspective, um, has the Inflation Reduction Act done anything for to elevate nonprofit pharma or its potential in the U.S. Maybe there are other federal policies um, that are gaining traction. I know that in the last year spending bill, Congress did approve provisions that kind of benefit or elevate nonprofit pharma, such as by including it in various studies that are going on. And that bill was bipartisan. Um, Can you talk about sort of the tailwinds that are happening, perhaps? Yeah, we are are very excited to have had our first uh, legislative uh, action for nonprofit pharma. Um, the very first time nonprofit pharma ever uh, has existed in federal law, uh, which is extremely, I think, important in today's day and time when we're talking about equity, um, drug shortages, pricing, all of these things that impact access overall. We have two uh, studies underway um, as part of the, the omnibus package that passed last year. Um, and we expect one of those studies to be issued this year on the potential for nonprofit pharma. Um, and then the other one will, will issue next year, at the end of next year. So we expect, and as you noted, there is um, bipartisan um, support and momentum for uh, a growing sector of nonprofit pharma. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. That's great to know. And the um, the Inflation Reduction Act, I don't know if that applies at all here. Uh, so because the, the IRA was negotiated um, uh, the way it ended up, there's not anything specific to nonprofit pharma in there. That doesn't mean that it won't benefit 
ultimately when it's implemented fully. But at, at this point, there's not anything specific that would benefit nonprofit pharma. I think there's an opportunity um, to really build on that um, legislation for future legislation, um, which we are working on um, with Senator Rosen's office. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This is a fascinating conversation and appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. That's it for The Top Line. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. And that's The Bottom Line from The Top Line.